Welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel. Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me. Cosima B. Concordia. And my name is Aurora Laborn. I can't get over just how apt all of her social critiques are or how like utterly authentic she was with her life decisions that we know of, again, from the biographical and autobiographical information that we have about her and from her poetry and from her, her other writing. A quote that I pulled from Ty's writing on her. I thought of you when I read this quote. So, (laughs) eager for affection and for disaster, oscillating between extreme audacity and the most dreadful anguish, as inconceivable on a scale of real beings as a mythical being, she tore herself on the thorns which she surrounded herself until becoming nothing but a wound, never allowing herself to be confined by anything or anyone. So that beautiful image of tearing herself on thorns, becoming a wound, but in order to open oneself out. Yeah, I had that quote written down too. So beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I totally thought of you. I was like, okay, this one. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. In her story of the little girl, she has this exploration of the sacred as this kind of oscillation between the poles of the sacred venerated and the dirty shameful in the search for this kind of true life outside of this staleness and this negation of life that she finds all around her in the family and in religious institutions. And then what's really fascinating is she she talks about how what may feel really good is just like the feeling of sacred happening So one of the images that comes to her the most is the bullfight, which ever since she saw her first one is like this super meaningful thing to her. She says the bullfight has to do with the sacred because there's the threat of death and real death, but it is felt, experienced by others with others. Imagine a bullfight for you alone. And so that idea that like the sacred is that where everything is at stake, where fullness of life is expressing itself. So she says, everything that has to do with the reason for being is sacred for me. The reason for still being, reason for life, reason for death. But also that the sacred for her isn't just a thing that she can do by herself. It's not something that she can just go into her room and do. And that's, I think, the thing that kind of torments her, that the sacred mixed with the social is needed for it to be sacred when she then, you know, italicizes. So the idea that there needs to be this sense of communion, this this sense of communication, not just from one being to another, but also from like one being in the universe. And I think then this ties again together into what we see and what becomes Bataille's eroticism, the different types of eroticism, which he calls the physical, emotional, and religious. And I think Lore very much articulates that. And near the end of, of her life, like with Bataille, like one of the things that was so so heartbreaking is that both of them talk about how 
the borders between one another seem to be coming down, that part of this intense love affair that they had with one another and just of love in general is this feeling of ego breaking the walls coming down and how vulnerable that is. But simultaneously, the ego is the thing that allows love to happen, like love between two egos. But at the same time, you are intrinsically killing the ego through that so that love is an impossibility and that love is the thing that Lore is addressing throughout all of her work, this impulse towards communication despite its impossibility. I feel like this is one of the last things that she wrote. And I'm, I'm sure that you have it in your notes too. She says, I want to talk about loving death because this alone signifies loving life without restriction. Loving it that much, death included, not becoming terrified by death again, more than by life. I sense myself becoming noble again. So you have to be vulnerable. You have to allow yourself to be wounded. You have to throw yourself on the horns and become the wound to maintain your integrity as a noble being, as a ethical being. You have to embrace those extreme oscillations. Like, I don't want to keep using the word binary, um, or I don't want to keep using the word paradox, because they're not paradoxes, like in the sense of the, what a paradox is. They're not con conflicting truths, because they're the same truth, but they rely on themselves to, to be there. So the connection between the opposites. I'm thinking of Heraclitus. <laughs> Philosopher in me is thinking of Heraclitus. But just by way of example, when we think of something like death, like we think of decay, but what is decay if not an abundance of life? So it becomes sort of paradoxical. The paradox is that there is a paradox between life and death. If death is the end of life or if death is decay, because decay is life at its fullest, I would argue. Being undone by another in love is being oneself in one's fullest, even though you can't attain it. Death is having attained life, actually. <laughs> Once you've made it to death, you've, you've made it. <laughs> fair to say that Bataille and Lore would both be disgusted at the idea of all the billionaires trying to pursue immortality. And also that this idea of communication experienced as nakedness, that, that experience isn't just like having a conversation. Experience is about trying to communicate the incommunicable. It's a process, a never-ending process that is always on some level doomed to fail but which we must continue on anyway, and a complete vulnerability, like this extremely courageous vulnerability. And I think that's a lot of where Lore is like so incredibly courageous that her communication as nakedness is what she does throughout her entire life and her correspondences. She is constantly reaching out, trying to express herself. Like when she's younger, she does write her family all the time and truly tries to communicate to these <laughs> extremely fucked up people <laughs> the ways that she's thinking, but then also at the same time almost negating herself, just like that the expression of itself is enough, saying like, oh, you know, you don't need, you don't need to read this. You know, I'm just a silly little girl. <laughs> and so the sacred is really the communication for her. That you picked up on the nakedness too. One of the poems and i love the structure of her fragments the fact that they end up being so stream of consciousness but then also sort of like to-do lists like she's weighing out options or like she's trying to plan for herself i would love to hear your 
thoughts on the structure of her fragments, because I wouldn't even quite call them fragments. There's something else. Fragmentary doesn't even begin to describe how active they are, because I don't think that they're just little pieces. So to me, fragments really speaks to the kind of thing that we pull from antiquity. So of course, Bataille, when he organized her writing, would have referred to them as fragments, being a librarian and having some training in the in the classics. So we either get fragments from classic texts like the works of Pythagoras or Heraclitus, their work being cited by more modern scholars. And by modern scholars, I, I'm referring to like monks in the Middle Ages or before, or literal fragments. So we found a huge pile of Sappho's poetry, for example, in a, a trash heap. So they were... they archaeologists were excavating a city and they found the landfill. Landfills are very important to history. <laughs> but I was right. Moore was right. Trash is really valuable. John Waters was right. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> so we found a ton of shards of her work. So fragments usually means something via a quotation or something via a, a shard, a scrap. And these are not that. These so-called fragments are something else. I would love you to help me think through how to describe them, because I, I think that doesn't do them justice. But I, I loved how it, it really was a to-do. And so another quote that really, really reminded me of you, and what I was very excited to share with you, says, Goal, to destroy the Christian spirit and its equivalences, like death, instinct, identities. Oh, shoot. I can't read my own handwriting. Neither could she. She's always apologizing for her handwriting. So I feel like I'm in good company. But I will tell you the page and I'll read you the quote. But I feel like this is our podcast. It's what our whole mission statement is. And she had it figured out. Goal. To destroy the Christian spirit and its equivalences like death, instinct, identifications with death, sacrifice, dust. I also underlined that. <laughs> So good. And then also, the meaning of a life discovered by Nietzsche, Nietzsche rediscovered and not read in a drone. <laughs> and I think that's so important all the way through that for her, ideas are of very urgent meaning and that she like really lives them in a very like concrete embodied way. She doesn't believe in having ideas that you just have as these like theoretical things. And she's like constantly going up against that idea of this dead rhetoric, ideas without action. So Kristeva has a couple of really great lines. Some of them are, I think, like the first 14 pages of Powers of Horror, where she talks about the abject, a concept which I'm fully convinced, having read as much Bataille and, and Laura as I have now, that it was already active and is already present. And I would absolutely love to hold on a rabbit hole placing the abject within Laura's work and giving it its actual recognition. But Kristeva has this line where she says that archivists and genealogists are like necrophiliacs covered in dust. They make love to dead things. That's really oddly fitting with Bataille because he is literally an archivist and identifies at least spiritually as a necrophiliac. <laughs> and there is this reoccurring theme of dust, and especially in, in Moore's writing. So immediately after the line that she talks about the goal to destroy the Christian spirit, she 
talks about taste for repulsion, for being repugnant, resembling dust, attractive beings. And given that repulsion and repugnance can sometimes be good things for her, like it's something that activates her and leads her to think or something that like sexually titillates her or I should say erotically probably more appropriate because eroticism means something much more dynamic um, but the fact that there's also this resembling of dust or the fact that the spaces that she hides away are dusty and the fact that she did have respiratory issues so i think it's fascinating that dust follows her around or it's something that she's vigilant about or very wary of she'd rather be covered in dirt she knows she's for the grave, which doesn't want to be an object on a shelf, or maybe this is her own wariness of being canonized. That's so fascinating. Well, in, in the end notes, her nephew wrote this very strange essay, My Diagonal Mother, that kind of centers himself in a weird way in her life. But one of the things that it does is like it has really great insight into this idea that her writing always feels like it's short of breath. It's a writing of precipices, that there's you know a lot of M dashes, a lot of non-complete thoughts that through them being cut off express themselves more than they could otherwise. And how then that also very much reflects her lifelong battle with illness and then her dying of tuberculosis when she was 35, this gasping for breath. And he articulates that writing is her taking a brief breath from her constant thirst to experience life at its absolute limit to its absolute limit. Writing is her taking in a quick breath when she has the chance. Yeah, I love that, that it's her taking a breath or that leading us up to the cliff right before we are ready to take that plunge. And it speaks to this feeling that I got. Because it felt like it was a to-do list, but in a way that was not prescriptive. It wasn't telling me, you need to do this. It was like, there are all these open futures. And I just had this, again, sense of immediacy or sense of needing to move to do things to realize what she was putting words to. This is a very, quote, heavy episode. So it says, there was faith, the period of happy certainty, confident activity, a certain a priori level of confidence. Everything sunk cowardice. Fear, fatigue, insoluble tenderness. And she says, Life is reconstructed. Choice, security, playing for time. Strength of character is asserted in the ability to play for time. Clear up, eliminate the old ideas of the past. Look for work. Contact Kojev. <laughs> Kojev being the Marxist Hegelian that her entire generation learned from. So she's working through these intense philosophical ideas, but also sort of making her five-year plan. <laughs> and it goes on to talk about Bataille and Asafail, stop work that is anti-Christian that leads to objection. It's like, again, like a to-do list. Certainty that to exist against is to exist. The need for life, for affirmation. The god Bataille, Bataille god that you will not, or excuse me, that you will find nothing beyond me. And then, and then there's like these diagrams, all these diagrams and arrows. It's practice this week, comings and goings, tragic, hateful, repeated, waste of intelligence. Husband? <laughs> <laughs> we have to post this page because it's hilarious. 
maybe this would be a good opportunity to go into how her writings were discovered that Bataille in their whole relationship knew that Lore wrote some, but had never read anything that she wrote that wasn't like an engaged aspect of their relationship. That was not something that she shared with anyone that we at least know, and that it was literally like on her deathbed. Once Bataille in despair realized that she was past communication, that she was so close to death that he would never be able to have a conversation with her again, never be able to access communication, that she gestured towards wanting something from her bag and he rifled through it and took all of the things out like one by one and none of those were like the correct thing for her until he found this like folded up folder um, that said the sacred on it and then that was the beginnings of her writings like of the sacred and of all of these other pieces that are the majority of the bulk of her writing that we have now and that Bataille in this sense of feeling that there walls were broken down in like this intense love affair that he felt that they like came upon this like notion of the sacred or were coming upon it in similar ways but then that she had articulated it and that he only came across it like once she was already past the point of communication it's both really sad but also like somewhat disturbing all of her work she was so prudent with who and how she shared it, and Bataille even describes her as having burned a lot of it. She thought a lot about what she put out there, and I think that's super remarkable. I respect that. And this is something that Bataille wrote about, too. When Bataille actually was first introduced to me as an undergraduate, it was through the rhetorical question of what if production, what if all production and reproduction was evil, and not in the fun, subversive sense of evil of, no, it's evil because it's capitalistic, because it's heteropatriarchal, because it is just more of the same, because it is what Nietzsche would have described as the spirit of gravity, so for all the same good, for all the same evil, so hegemonic. And she refused that logic, and she again held herself to that, the kind of exacting standards that she wrote about. And I was just so blown away by that, because I think, and this is me being really idealistic, that if you don't hold yourself to the same standards that you're writing about, if you don't actually practice the things that you ostensibly believe in, then it's not just you that's bullshit, it's the work. I think it's also worth saying that Laura was always in tension with herself about whether she, she did accomplish acting out her work or acting out her ideas. It was something that affected her so bodily and was something that she pursued um, so intensely. But at the same time, it was also something that she was anguished about because you live in a world, you live with these connections to other humans. And I think that, well, I think we can, we can certainly look upon her body of work and be, and be amazed at like how how she like really did as much as was fathomably possible for for her and all her conditions to live what she would see as this true life and go against all of these systems that at the same time she also was incredibly doubtful and critical of herself at that at like so many different junctures i also want to go back and connect all that you just said to the point that you made about her living with a chronic disability so there's so much to explore about the intersections between eroticism, productivity, and disability here. Yeah. 
I just wanted to shed a little bit more light on that or to put that back on the table. Yeah, absolutely. She says, if I've suffered, it was through illness that for her truly like the body was the biggest thing, like the biggest struggle of her life, (laughs) more than the abuse she suffered, more than more than anything else. Like at one point when she is feeling like extremely good for like the first time in a while, she talks about how she would like to exhaust her body in a thousand ways and how she doesn't want to just be a brain and how she wants to live the embodiment. And then later in one of her pieces, she says, your body is your law. Everything else comes after. Nothing is more fortunate than this rebirth in your body. And I mean... (laughs) again, as a trans person, like I deeply relate to that. The experience of regaining embodiment and it's like, it's gaining the world back in a really important way. And this feeling of being like divorced from your body of, of the body, like going against you is this extremely difficult thing. But at the same time, for her, her agony, her illness is not, it's not a disassociation. It's also an it's an incredible agony. Like she talks about her agony as a florid bullfight. So again, connected to her idea of the sacred. Death is on the line, being is on the line. And there's this sense of ecstasy and meaning there, even as there's this like suffering. I want to connect hardship to the notion of, of embodiment and of her relationship with her gender and her disability. And so she says, And if hardship or extreme hardship comes, it's because it's what I needed to realize myself to go farther, even further, and they speak of crime. So it's not just a symbolic transgression. She's not just breaking the law. She's being challenged in a embodied sense, and it breaks those simple notions. It's about that movement of going beyond oneself, but also realizing oneself as one goes beyond oneself. So you're always becoming yourself when you when you leave yourself. There's this challenge of the cogito. And we'll see where this goes, because I don't mean to get too Cartesian. They don't even know how to get Cartesian anymore. I'm so... <laughs> It'll be so worth it. Okay, so it's in one of her letters, and she says... You asked me if doubt pushed me to the other side. No, I noticed that when I doubt, I exist again. But when I despair, everything that was hateful to me becomes desirable, tempting. I might even take great pains to reconstruct something I destroyed furiously the night before and vice versa. And I think that this is valid for any achievement and along any lines. This is indeed what terrifies me. I can say this only to you, perhaps... Later, you'll be able to make me feel at peace with myself without having to sever me. I wanted to say, without castrating me, that I was ashamed and I didn't want to be ashamed in front of you. So that's a rejection of the notion of Cartesian skepticism of the cogito, I think, therefore I am, because it's based in a kind of Cartesian doubt. So he knows that he's a thinking being because he has to doubt all else and the only thing he can be sure of is himself and so she's sure of herself without doubt she's sure of herself because she's embodied because she's acting out because she's desiring destroying creating what she does here is brilliant it speaks to how brilliant she is that this is something that just 
shows up in one of her correspondences. It's not something that she was systematically writing in a book. Although, again, because we know that she burnt her work or we only have access to a super limited amount of what I'm sure was a huge amount of creative and philosophical and theoretical writing. So she turns the whole of modern philosophy on its head because she critiques the cogito. So the cogito is for everyone, including myself. <laughs> and it's based on this process of Cartesian skepticism, so Cartesian doubt, where Descartes tries to understand the world or try to f- tries to figure out what he can be sure of by doubting everything except for what he can prove and the one thing I think, that he I can't am. possibly yeah. doubt because it's the one thing that he mm-hmm. knows has to be certain or else nothing is besides God. He's like certain of God. And I'm not a Cartesian, so forgive me if I'm giving you the philosophy 101 version because this is the version that I teach and <laughs> the version I find to be the most useful. Um, anyway, he can't doubt that he's a thinking being because... Once he begins to think, he knows that he exists. And she does the opposite. So, to quote this letter. You asked me if doubt pushed me to the other side. No, I noticed that when I doubt, I exist again. But when I despair, everything that was hateful to me becomes desirable, tempting. I might even take great pains to reconstruct something I destroyed furiously the night before and vice versa. I think this is valid for any achievement and along any lines. So she exists through thinking but it's when she feels when she emotes when she acts out that she really exists that she creates the conditions for any kind of what she describes as valid achievement to take place this is in a couple of lines actually what a lot of contemporary feminism tries to do it tries to undo the the cogito and to place embodiment on the same line as rational thinking. And she's already critiquing it and then denying that binary because we know now that it's not so simple to think that men are rational, women are irrational. Like that's not even what Descartes thought. Like Descartes actually believed in the emotions, but she's she's just doing this really remarkable thing. It's just just an aside. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So Lord died within Bataille's house, and then... Do you actually believe that that's what happened? That seems to be a mythical element. I wasn't comfortable with the sources. It makes sense to me that it happened because the family who really, you know, wants to erase Lore and, like, and her legacy and, like, mm-hmm. and doesn't like any of her shit also says that they went into her house. So, so like, it, you know, it is possible, I guess, that, that Laura died elsewhere, but her family did go into Bataille's house to, like, sit on the deathbed or whatever. So, like, that doesn't seem, like, super realistic to me to fabricate. I just want to talk a little bit about how Bataille sums up Laura's sacred in a way that I think, like, really um, shows us how, like, both his like eroticism and inner experience functions in a way that you can tell is like very directly <laughs> um, taken from her. 
like to say inspired it would be it would be to undersell it so Patai makes the point that Absolutely. Laura never like, directly defines the sacred that the sacred is something that um Laura addresses at several points but never brings together in a coherent sense and I think in many ways that is very much part of her project purposeful but um but how Patai sums up the Laura's sacred as as best he can is um this definition would link the sacred to the moments in which isolation of life in the individual sphere is suddenly broken. Moments of communication, not only between men, but between men and the universe, in which they are ordinarily foreigners. Communication should be understood here in the sense of a fusion, a loss of oneself, the integrity of which is achieved only in death, and of which erotic fusion is an image. So here, when he says the integrity of which is achieved only in death is which, like, the the end, which can only be achieved in death, that it is, again, mm-hmm. that, that impulse of getting as close to death without dying. And that that movement isn't, it isn't a, um, mm-hmm. it isn't the sacred and its opposite. It's actually the two poles of the sacred, that the vile and sublime are actually these, um, or the profane and the sacred are these two poles that make up the sacred world. And in between those two things is the simple happiness, the quote unquote true life that Lore inspired to. So, so that what you were calling, not authenticity, what were you calling it? Integrity. Integrity? Because I think she uses that word a lot and i also think that it captures the extent to which her notion as you were just speaking to of the sacred has two poles so it's not paradoxal it's not two like conflicting truths because that's like paradoxa in the in the greek it is the same truth those two poles make up the the project and she puts herself in between them with this notion of integrity. Being fully human, being towards that project or maintaining one's integrity is, is again, necessarily an openness, or is it becoming towards being undone? Uh, is the death drive, as I'm, I'm sure you're about to put into two words that I can't quite grasp right now. Absolutely, yeah. A vulnerability of the, the death of self and ego and those those lines that blur and again that those impulses are simultaneously abhorrent to us because they overcome the self they overcome the boundaries of the self but at the same time they also connect us to the things that are meaningful the things that are bigger than us and that that impulse is is always at is always at play on her deathbed lore talks about how when he finds these writings on the sacred that it feels like this kind of, um, (laughs) you know, almost like too much to be a coincidence divine thing where he comes across the first notions of the sacred in his work just as he comes across Lore's collected works on it. So he says, during the last days of Lore's illness is the afternoon of November 2nd, I had come to the passage where I expressed the similarity between our quest for the grail and the object of religion. I ended it with this sentence. Christianity has substantialized the sacred, but the nature of the sacred. 
in which we recognize today the burning existence of religion is perhaps what is most elusive among men, the sacred being only a privileged moment of communal unity, a moment of convulsive communication of what ordinarily is stifled. I immediately added in the margin to indicate clearly, at least to myself, the meaning of the last lines, identical to love. And so we'll never know how much of him coming across that uh, that idea at that time was actually true and how much of that was his own sense of myth-making after Lure passing away. But it does certainly feed into that idea of blurring of selves in a way that I think is, is really, really interesting. His desire to keep communicating with her, to keep seeing her as a interlocutor, that's tragic. Yeah, well, and I mean, it's so sad. Like when talking about going to her grave a year afterward, I was scared of her. And it seemed that if she appeared to me, I would have no choice but to scream in terror. And then um, arriving in front of it, I held myself in my own arms in grief, no longer aware of anything. And at that moment, it was as if I had split in two in some obscure way and I was holding her in my arms. My hands disappeared around myself, and it seemed to me I was touching her and breathing her. A terrible sweetness seized me, just as when we would suddenly find one another, as when the barrier separating two people had vanished. Then, at the idea that I would become myself once again, bound to my ponderous needs, I began to moan and ask her for forgiveness. And... There's so much similarity around that darkness. And also he talks about the chasm, the abyss of her grave, like the most darkness. Um, and this like really dark night where he, he like goes up to her grave is around her grave. And it really feels so similar to the kind of mystic experiences uh, that we talked about in last episode about like the unsane, you know, the confrontation with nothingness, which I think is really beautiful that the the confrontation with nothingness and the confrontationness with otherness they're impossible to distinguish from each other entirely you know because nothingness is just the cessation of the self so you'll have to help me walk through this because with nothingness there's no communication nothing doesn't answer back I think this idea of nothingness comes more from Bataille's later work, after Lore's death and after the war, where earlier we can see how, like, you know, within Asaphale, there was this idea that, like, sacrifice could be this act of communication. And as we talked about in last episode, part of what kind of destroyed that illusion is the war. But the other thing that broke down that illusion is Lore's death, which was the biggest tragedy of Bataille's life. And that really fully brought to focus that communication was impossible. Like the best he could ever do is to communicate with the moment of her death. And that what a massive loss that was. But then I think that if we look at how then he talks about nothingness later, like in the context of Christian mysticism, as we talked about him in the other episode through like Amy Hollywood's work, that the nothingness, the god of the mystics, the nothingness that he confronts, it's a disruption of otherness. There's a coherency of self, there's an ego, and then the nothingness is the disruption or the collapse of that thing, right? And so there's not a concrete line 
I think it's completely reasonable at that point to say that um, that's not nothingness. But that is a lot of like what the experiences of the mystics had, these experiences with like darkness of the chasm or of these really transgressive things as this way of disrupting the hegemony of the things that are. Okay. And it goes back to what if production and reproduction was evil, but also nothingness doesn't always present us with an end when you think about it, because it presents us with an opening because it presents us with space at the same time that it's an end of a project. It's not linear. So it's not reproduction. It's not too many things that is the problem for Bataille. It's same thinking, right? It's falling in for something as opposed to existing like as a being that has its own thoughts and its own agency. And that fundamentally like the structure of society and the structure of the family and the structure of everything else is built to undermine that and to negate the potentiality of life. And so like what would happen if life was affirmed? And we stopped just creating things because we can create them. We were intentional about our actions. That is maybe not Bataille, but I I stand by that application of of his work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's, that's totally fair. (laughs) Laura always had this sense of contradiction in herself where she said why when I see myself following my thoughts through to the end do I get the impression of betraying what I love most in the world and of betraying myself without this betrayal being avoidable so that like the mere process of thought the mere process of following her true life to the end is something that intrinsically is following through it into an impossibility. So her nephew in his article like talks about it this way, that it is because we possess an ego that we are. Without an ego, there is no love. And yet that same ego kills love. Here, once again, lore is grappling with the impossible. And so love is fundamentally an impossibility. It's always a grappling with the outside of yourself while also only existing because of the self. And that process is the thing that must be pursued and all of the structures which are built to negate that and to make that safe and to make that easy should be opposed basically (laughs) (laughs) um will you be a little bit more specific about all of those structures that are supposed to make that easy so what ought we to reject then within the story of the little girl and within like laura's entire life her relationship with the major structures that like structure society, like religious institutions and the family and propriety, you know, like the class divide, all of those different things are things which fundamentally structure things in a way so that the actual impulse towards life, which Lore thinks actually like breeds sympathy, which breeds solidarity, which breeds like action, which breeds like heroism, which breeds virtue, that all of those things are undermined and are like subsumed within these structures so that there is actually no ability to meet life at its fullest. So from her essay, she says... The most decisive steps in my life have always been accomplished in a state of trance, which alone allowed me to act towards and against all obstacles. 
so lucidity, physical weakness, etc., etc. It is what I would have given my life for. If a being can no longer experience this feeling in her life, it is though deprived of meaning, deprived of the sacred. The adjectives to which you attribute a sacred sense, like prestigious, extraordinary, dangerous, forbidden, seem to me to be terribly laden with meaning and seduction on their own, seduction that gives them this entrancement in which one feels caught beyond everyday life, this displacement, this feeling that something is happening. For me, that is not the sacred. Like, she begins the definition, and then she sort of walks you, it's very dialectical, walks you through it, almost halfway affirms it, and then rejects it. <laughs> it goes back to what you said about it being super contradictory and this paradoxical thinking that is not quite paradoxical. But how do you feel about Bataille taking it upon himself to articulate what she means by the sacred? So he does a reading of her. I had really mixed feelings about it. I'm happy that he credits her, but it also felt like he was putting words into her mouth or he was trying to systematize or to find something that was necessarily, as you mentioned, undefinable, as you said. Yeah, ineffable, for sure. <laughs> I think that that is part of the difficulty of Laura's body of work. Her family, like, actively wanted it repressed, like, wanted it never released, never published, because it was, like, harmful and, like, immoral. And then it was largely because of Bataille that it ended up, like, seeing the light of day. And so I think that that's so complicated <laughs> because like the fact that Bataille and Lore had such a intimate relationship and he claims that he did not know so many of these things that she never like trusted him or like shared so many of these things with him. It's hard to imagine, I guess. And it does make me think or worry about about a devaluation of like lore as like a person and you know like a kind of like putting her as like this kind of muse that wasn't like a real person to Bataille at all times. I mean when he writes about her in his fiction he does talk about really putting her on a pedestal and seeing her as everything that is divine and then everything that is most abject. So I've been thinking a lot about what necrophilia means to Bataille, because it seems to be the thing that people are most caught up on, and it's something that he also talks about. So he tried to understand his impotence through the possibility that he was a necrophiliac, and he really quickly decides that that simply wasn't the case. But when you think about it, necrophilia is the greatest rejection of like reproductive um <laughs> notion of sexuality so it is onism taken to its most extreme limit so if following sophocles and the the oedipal cycle if antigone who was the result of oedipus having killed his father and slept with his mother is the end of the generation and her name means the anti-seed, so it's symbolic of the breaking up of the family. Being a necrophiliac, masturbating in front of the corpse of your mother is less about the sexual act of doing that, and more so a affirmation of non-reproductive sex, because nothing is going to end the next generation more than, than incest that is beyond incest. Again, that's a metaphor for him not only to reject 
heteropatriarchal familial bondings, but then also for him to come to terms with the fact that he suffered from impotence, which, given his descriptions of his alcoholism and given how he writes about sex, is something that I feel very confident asserting about him not being his doctor, <laughs> not being his biographer. But I wonder if he, like, I don't know, had weird hang-ups. Like, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm, still, I'm still processing this. The point about necrophilia, <laughs> not non-reproductivity is important, though. It's just, it's so strange to me that one of the few moments of, like, coitus in his work, it's with the character that is meant to be her in a graveyard. Like, I almost don't buy that he wrote The Blue of Noon before her death. It's such a strange coincidence. Like, she's already out of his life by the time that he's writing it. He's dealing with the fact that Bond is over. He's coping with the loss of his, like, masculine virility, or he's acknowledging that that's not something that he ever had or he ever valued, but it was something that he felt compelled towards, or he felt some degree of contempt for not being able to participate in. Necrophilia seems to be an apt metaphor for someone that's coming to terms with the death of a lover. So it does make sense to me to like sexually identify as a necrophiliac if you're still deeply in love with someone that's dead. Or it makes sense to me to describe like making love to them the one moment where like ostensibly they made love or they were able to successfully do it like in a graveyard to open all of those boundaries or to question them. It has less to do with the transgressive nature of like, oh, we ought to respect cemeteries with no, that's if they were going to make love, if they were going to have sex, that's the only possible place to imagine it because it's the only possible place to access her. And it could only ever be an act of necrophilia, even in this work of fiction where I'm writing her as having been alive. Interesting. Wait, when was The Blue of Noon written? So it says that he completed it in 1935. Again, so Blue of Noon says it was published in 1935. She died in 1938. I really don't buy it. I have a hard time believing, given the way that he writes about her in the second half of the book, that he didn't re-edit it after her death. Mm, super interesting, yeah. She's already, in his description of her character, navigating her illness to the extent to which she has to plan her journey by taking into account her exhaustion. Her nephew, you know, like really romanticizes in a sometimes strange way the relationship between Bataille and Lore but does do a really good job at talking about how much of Bataille's work, especially after Lore's death, exists where Lore is just kind of this constant haunting throughout his mm -hmm. work. Like, her name is just like a blank space that isn't filled in. And that her writings are, like, absolutely foundational to everything that Bataille does after that. That, like her ghost is alive and well. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening with us today. If you'd like to support our show um, and get access to 
our bonus episodes, which so far include our episode on Benedetta and on Mad God. You can subscribe to any level tier, and obviously we appreciate uh, if you have more money to subscribe at a higher level tier, but also we appreciate people who are just listening and are not paying us any money at all. So you can go to www.patreon.com slash drunk church. Do, do we also want to do a thing about encouraging communication? <laughs> As you know, on this podcast... As you can probably understand from the last many hours of uh, philosophy, we like communication on this podcast. So please leave us a comment or rate our podcast or, you know, just just like reach out, say, hey, what's what's up? And, and tell us tell us your your thoughts, because we we value you and, and you're you're important. Haunt us. Haunt us. <laughs> Haunt us as lore did to Bataille until the very end in which she led him to hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Bless you for building a new dream Just when my old dream crumbled so helplessly 